We the people. We the people. We the people of the United States. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, to ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Welcome back, my fellow cheese lovers. It is Constitution Thursday on Afternoons Live. It's me, it's Dave, along with John. Text number remains 565-DAVE, 565-3283. This is that hour of the week that we set aside to actually read the Constitution, study it, talk about it. What does it mean? How did it get written that way? Why did they write it that way? How has it been interpreted since then? How has it been applied since then? How does it affect our lives even today? Maybe even how it's changed history along the way. Those are all questions we look at. We call it Constitution Thursday. And we're glad you're a part of it. 565 Dave's text machine number as well. We finished uh, Article 1 last week. As long as that took, Article 2 may not take... uh, Article 1, of course, is the longest section of the Constitution. I mean, it's in the world. Well, yeah. Well, I don't know. I've not read. <laughs> well, a, I haven't read other constitutions. The longest so. section of ours. So uh, they kind of like the uh, the New Testament is put together. Other than the four Gospels, you know how they put together the rest of the New Testament in order of size. <laughs> it's really? not. It's not chronological. So they order the books is by size. Well, in this kind of the same way here, although not with the same purpose. These uh, these sections will get smaller and smaller as we move along, which in a way makes sense, I guess, if you think about it. So. Article 2, the second longest, the executive branch. A loqui conizio, stand up, tell those who oppose liberty, don't tread on me. So it was July 8th, 1974, in Washington, D.C., in the Supreme Court of the United States, U.S. versus Nixon. Now, much ado had led to this particular day, and if you're not familiar with the scandal that had led to this particular moment and what is about to be said on the uh, the floor of the Supreme Court in front of the eight justices. One justice has already recused himself from this case. William Rehnquist has already said, you know what? I have too close a ties to the Nixon administration. I need to step aside. Was he nominated by, the, by Nixon? I don't believe he was, but he had some... He may have been. I, okay. I didn't look that. But he felt his ties were too close to the Nixon administration... And so, he, so for whatever reason, he recused mind, himself. Keep in mind, Nixon had been the vice president under Eisenhower. Okay, so, so it might have been it, okay. These relationships, and, and you're going to part of the problem with government is that it's incestuous, right? <laughs> I, I mean, I say that, but and, and you know, maybe it's tongue in cheek a little bit, but the same names keep coming up over and over and over again. Uh, Mitt Romney just ran for president of the United States. He's not the first Romney to do that. George Bush's, uh, Clinton's, Roosevelt's. These same names keep popping up for the same reasons over and over again. Uh, Richard Nixon, as most of you know, had the middle name Milhouse. Richard Milhouse Nixon. Right. Which was the name of uh, Bart's best friend on The Simpsons. Which is probably a... Because of that. Probably some sort of tribute to Richard Milhouse without an E. Nixon. 
It may be the weirdest. Uh, may be the weirdest. If it wasn't for Millard Fillmore, it may be the weirdest name Millard. in presidency. <laughs> Millard Fillmore. Nixon, as most of you had known, or will know, if you don't know, if you're not familiar with this, had been elected to the presidency in 1968. This is after losing in 1960 to John Kennedy. He lost to John Kennedy in a very closely contested race, a race that many people still believe to this day was, in fact, stolen by Joe Kennedy, John Kennedy's father, particularly in Ohio, where there were some shenanigans with the voting. At the time, it was... Suggested to Richard Nixon, who had been the vice president under Eisenhower, that he should um, he should demand a recount, that he should make a big wave. Nixon's approach in 1960 was, no, that's not what the country needs, not what's best for the country. Let's just move forward. Which we kind of acknowledged as a classy maneuver. It's a very classy maneuver. Fast forward a mere 13 years. And in 1968, Dick goes, Nixon, hey, remember that guy who did the cool thing? Dick Nixon had managed to get himself elected in 1968 in the... As the country was splitting itself apart over Vietnam, his primary focus in, in the election of 68 was he was going to end the, he was going to restore law and order and end the war in Vietnam. He had a secret plan to end the war in Vietnam. Now, a lot of people didn't understand at the time that his secret war to end the war in Vietnam was to literally bomb the crap out of North Vietnam until there was no North right. Vietnam. Um, had you, they understood that, who knows? Using Dr. Manhattan, who had recently revealed him, himself to uh, exist as a superhero, and then they got rid of term limits, and Nixon was president in the 80s. Sure. I'm sorry, that's the plot of Watchmen. <laughs> okay. Nixon had some interesting ideas a- about those things, and, and even later on in life, he would say that um, if he had anything to do in his presidency over again, he would have bombed North Korea earlier. <laughs> Well, his thought processes were that... I would have double-bombed them. He, By doing so, he would have forced the North Vietnamese to the peace talks sooner. Right. And maybe the thought process then being that he wouldn't have gotten himself embroiled in what would eventually become known as Watergate. Now, Watergate is a hotel in Washington, D.C., where the Democratic National Committee had its headquarters. They had offices there. And in the 1972 election, which, by the way, I remember very well, the uh, it was obvious basically from the first day that Dick Nixon was going to win and he was going to win big. I mean, it wasn't even going to be close. Everybody understood this with the possible exception of the Democrat loyalists. They they may have held on to a little bit of hope. But the fact is, Nixon was going to win. There was no problem. Yeah, things were going fairly well in the country. Law and order it seemed to be restored. Vietnam was winding down. There were a few other minor issues. I mean, we had the energy crisis thing going on. We had the idiocy of daylight savings time year-round, which I'm in favor of, uh, so forth and so on. But, you know, as an overall thing, it wasn't clear to anybody that any Democrat could come out of the the fiasco that had become the Democrat Party at that point and do it better. Nixon was going to win. So for some reason, he panicked and thought, well, I need to get some dirt on these guys. And they formed what was known as CREEP. The committee to re-elect the president. Creep. That's what they actually call yeah, it. Yeah, that's fantastic. Manned by the White House plumbers. That's what their job was. Their job was to stop White House leaks to the press because the press, the president, as you heard at the top of the show, had something of an adversarial relationship with the press. He didn't like them. They didn't like him. Poppycock. Poppycock, he once said. He also said, hey, I'm not mad at you because in order to be mad at you, I have to respect you. That was the relationship that they had. Sure. All right. <laughs> Certain members of this uh, this particular group decided 
under someone's direction to break into the Watergate headquarters of the Democrat National Convention and somehow or another obtain materials that would somehow or another damage a candidate who was doomed to lose anyway. One of those men. So the kind of terrible thing about this is that they, they, this prob- they probably didn't even need to do this. No, there was no necessity for this. Oh. It was not necessary. In any way, shape, or form. Well, it gets better because, of course, as we know, one of those guys was a dude by the name of G. Gordon Liddy. Right. Who would go on to write a book called Will, which is a, uh, that may be one of the most fascinating psychological studies and self-delusionment I've ever read in my life. And if you haven't read it, you won't understand what I'm saying. But G. Gordon Liddy has convinced himself that he's the hero of this whole incident. Oh, yeah. Right down to, he describes in great detail the fact that when he went to the toilet, because they had their head, their headquarters post was in another room in the Watergate, right? So that's where they're running the burglary from, right down to the point where he wouldn't use his hands to flush or lift the toilet seat. He used his feet because he didn't want to leave footprints or fingerprints on this stuff. <laughs> Needless to say, the burglary was basically a second-rate botch job. The guy that actually gets caught doing the burglary has on his person the names of the people that send him to do this. Right. And their phone numbers, which if you call their phone numbers, get answered, guess where? At the White House. 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. <laughs> long story short, very long story short, because this went on for, for months. And um, it's it was one of those convulsions of our country that's um, uh, it's, it's hard to describe. But finally, we reached the point where the president, where it became common knowledge that the president recorded all of the conversations in his office in a tape machine, and he would record these conversations. And the theory became that these plans for all of, not just the break-in, but the subsequent cover-up of the break-in were, in fact, discussed in the Oval Office and therefore were on those tapes. With me here? Hence the Watergate tapes. Hence the Watergate tapes. And so Congress said, we want those tapes. In the meantime, they had required that the president hire a special prosecutor to investigate the Watergate break-in. Congress had set some specific rules. This guy cannot be fired. He works for, you know, with, with privilege. He can't be fired unless he, you know, breaks the law himself. Nixon fired him. Gets better. Nixon told his attorney general to fire him is what happened. His attorney general said, bleep you, no, and quit. So Nixon said to the assistant attorney general, fire him. The assistant attorney general said, bleep you, no, and quit. So they had to find a a, a new, an emergency attorney general. They had to put somebody in that job right away. Check. Mm. Because somebody's got to fire Archibald Cox. So they went and got somebody else to come in and be the attorney general. To fire Archibald Cox. And this guy who came in to do that later claimed that um, he only did it because he thought the other two guys resigned, not because he thought they just quit and he didn't realize that the reason they quit was because the president told him to fire Archibald Cox, the special investigator who was looking into the president's malfeasance. That was his excuse. It was completely unbelievable at the time. And it's no wonder people were asking the same questions. (sighs) 16 years later, when Robert Bork stood in front of the Senate and went, I'd like to be your next Supreme Court justice. Robert Bork, the guy that fired Archibald Cox after being installed as the temporary attorney general, with a promise from Nixon that he would be nominated to the Supreme Court. Because he's a crap weasel. You can claim whatever you want, but a lot of that had to do with the fact that he was involved with... He may or may not be a crap weasel. 
Well, he did fire Archibald Cox. <laughs> no two ways about that. We wanted the tapes, Doc. Got it? We need these tapes. Nixon claimed executive privilege. No, I don't have to give you these tapes. I'm the executive. I don't have to do that. And so the wrangling began. Nixon offered a compromise. He said, I'll tell you what. And I'm not going to give you the tapes, but here's what I'll do. We'll send it. You send me a senator. We'll bring in a, a Democrat senator, no less. I'll let him listen to the tapes, and he can tell you what he heard. How's that? You okay with that? Oh, am I Nixon? Well, no, you wouldn't be. You'd, you'd be the other people going, oh, okay, this is the compromise he's offering. Sure. The problem, John, is that, that he chooses Senator John Stennis. It's known as the Stennis Compromise. Stennis is uh, deaf, basically. <laughs> and everybody knows this. Right. It's almost as if Nixon is saying, yeah, I'll let a deaf guy listen to the tapes and tell you what he heard. Basically. So they reject the Stennis Compromise. And this whole thing ends up with Nixon, U.S. versus Nixon with the, uh, with, the, with the special prosecutor, the new special prosecutor, suing to get the tapes. Congress is upset. The country's watching all this. And President Nixon saying, well, people have the right to know whether their president is a crook. I am not a crook. Yet yeah, he has kind of, kind of gone at every turn to make sure that the American people don't get to find out. Seems that way, doesn't it? Yeah. For most people, it was amazing an angering time to watch as John St. Clair, the president's personal attorney, stood before the Supreme Court in this case, should he have to turn over the tapes or not, and actually said these words to the United States Supreme Court, quote, the president wants me to argue that he is as powerful as Louis XIV, only four years at a time, and is not subject to the processes of any court in the land except the court of impeachment, unquote. And they said, fine, <laughs> let's do that. It was uh, amazing. It was angering to hear the president through his attorney tell the nation that indeed he not only thought himself above the law, but expected to be treated as if he were a monarch, a French monarch at that. It was more than most co- Americans could tolerate. Yeah. And from that day forward, momentum of the court of impeachment was unstoppable and actually unavoidable. The court, of course, did rule on an eight to nothing ruling that will surprise no one that Nixon needed to turn over the tapes. Shocker, eh? It was as convoluted and twisted a political corruption story as has ever existed. It led to the moment when the President of the United States offered, as I said, the Stennis Compromise to try and calm the waters. Damages done by these actions have reverberated for years, even into 1987, when Supreme Court nominee Robert Bork would be denied a seat on the nation's highest court, in large part because of his own actions as a part of the Watergate scandal. Even our former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton has her own Watergate ghosts, which may yet come back to haunt her political future. She was fired from the committee investigating Nixon for being dishonest. Really? True story. Names that still reverberate in our ears came and went, became famous, then faded, only to return again, some rehabilitated, somehow restored to respectability and honor. Even the president himself would later find some return to respectability as a foreign affairs specialist and an author. Later, opinions would begin to soften, and we'd begin to believe that his involvement in the whole thing was perhaps not any less vigorous or more criminal than any other president. Many people today will say the only thing different about Nixon is he got caught. Is that true? Is the real legacy of 1972 and 73 that Americans automatically assume that their president is a crook? And as long as they don't know about it, they don't need to care. Is the legacy that a president is above the law? After all, someone reason. Yeah, you know, it's just sex. Who cares? 
Even now, historians begin to look back at the president, who had not, uh, they begin to look back at presidents who had not a hint of speculation of involvement in scandal or miscreant deeds with a jaded eye. Read a book this weekend about Millard Fillmore and the scandals of his, his, his presidency. Never heard of such a thing before. It's as if the assumption has become that this is what we must expect and therefore accept from the imperfect men who desire the most powerful office we the people have to offer them. But the truth is, the story of that day, July 8th, 1974, started just 10 days shy of exactly 187 years earlier in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, on July 17th, 1787, at the Constitutional Convention. It's Afternoons Live. It's Article 2. Stay with us. Back right after this. By the time July had rolled around, the Constitutional Convention had been meeting for almost two full months. Arguments, confusion, disagreements, still missing Rhode Island. In fact, delegates have gotten up and left because they're mad, John. They, I, don't, I don't like that. They get up and leave. And they have to wait for another state to come in so that they have a quorum. They've got these flies because it's been a very wet winter, these these huge black flies. Enormous flies. Yeah. Plus, you got the prisoners next door making noise and yelling invectives at people and <laughs> escaping. It's summer. Yeah, there is that too. Summertime in uh, in Philadelphia. It's getting hot. They're getting ready to take an eleven day break. They're going to take. They're going to take almost two weeks off. And so temper. You know how it is. Right before you go on vacation, people are a little short. People are a little yeah, uh, short time out of here. Yeah. And so they uh, they reach the point where they feel like they have to discuss this this idea of the executive. They've already worked their way through all the congressional stuff, how they're going to select those things, how they're going to put all that together. And now they turn to this this element of the executive, and they have some problems here. Number one, it's never been done before. They've never had an executive of this nature in history. There's nobody ever been this before. They're doing they're doing something that's They've had republics. They're basically like making up a job. They are, but there's a there's a huge caveat to that. And we'll get to that here in just a second. There's no international examples. No positives. A lot of negatives. They look at, uh, they, we talked uh, last week, we talked about these republics in other places. For example, um, Holland was a republic. And yet... They really didn't like the way their chief executive was chosen because, you see, their chief executive was basically whoever had the most uh, money to give away to people. That's how he got the job. Switzerland, a republic at the time, didn't even bother to choose a chief executive. They just uh, they just sort of, well, Congress should have their 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 legislative body would take care of everything. And see, that's the problem that they have is that they they've done this before where they had Congress and no president. They had a president of the Congress. Right. But they didn't have a an executive. So every decision had to be made by Congress. Every decision had to be made by Congress. Which basically gives Congress all the power, which worse than that, we also don't want. Well, you don't only, not only do you not want that, but think about this. Every decision has to be made by this giant committee. Right. So nothing gets done. Nothing gets done at all. And they realize that this is, this is not good. We, we don't like it that way. The Holy Roman Empire, 
is amazingly enough still in existence at this point. They um, they look at some of the uh, the way that that person is chosen. They don't like that. Poland has a king, but it's not a hereditary king. It's a sort of a quasi elected king sort of thing, and that is just full of corruption and full of uh, Borgia esque type shenanigans to uh, become that king. They're looking at all these people and they realize eh, this is not going to work. They have a second problem, which is how to choose that president. There's a couple of ways you could do this, right? Congress could select the president. Right. We could do popular vote. Do popular vote. Problem with those, of course, is if Congress selects the president, what kind of problems might we see here? Well, cronyism, factionism. Uh, Who does the actual president work for? Does he work for Congress or does he work for the people? If he's appointed by Congress, I mean, he pretty much works for Congress, right? The other side of this is if you have a direct election, in other words, the people directly elect the president, you have similar problems in a lot of ways in the sense that, well, <laughs> let's see. Um, George Mason insisted that people simply could not be trusted. Popular elections are unnatural, he said. It's like referring a trial of colors to a blind man. And in the 1780s, it would have been. I mean, really, how do you run a national campaign for president in the 1780s? Right. You'd have to you'd have to start four years before the election just to try to get the get the word out to everybody. You couldn't really do it. Plus, there was a lot of concern that the people wouldn't choose wisely. And as if all of that is not enough, what do we do with this guy? What is this guy actually going to do? Who are we going to model him after? How do we choose him? There's a bigger problem, which is how do we get rid of him if he turns out to be a klutz or a bad guy? So we've got to work that out. And actually, that's actually the easiest part of this whole thing, because Ben Franklin says, well, we should have an impeachment process because we can either impeach him or assassinate him. And really. And there's no in between. That's a good right. point. Either everybody wants him gone or. Or not. You kill him. Right. <laughs> and we don't really want to go down that assassination route. Right. That's, that's probably not in keeping with our traditions. And right. So let's let's work on this impeachment part. And that's actually the first part they get done of all this is they figure out how they're going to get rid of somebody they don't like. But the biggest problem of all that they have about setting up this presidency is right there in the room with them. And they all know it. They're all worried about it. And that is that they know that there's only one, George Washington. It's half past. Afternoons Live Constitution Thursday. Stay with us. Back right after Welcome back. Afternoons live. Constitution Thursday. Article 2, the executive. 565, Dave, is the text machine number. 565-3283. So, John, we've seen the problems. This executive idea. It's never been done before, so we don't really even know what we're doing. Knowing There's no examples, even in history, to, to draw from. There's we got to argue how to choose this guy. Do Does Congress choose him? Do the people choose Is it once for seven years? Can he run for re-election? 
All these things have yet to be decided. And they know Washington's going to be good at it, but they don't know that anybody else is going to be the well, man for the, the job, That's the biggest problem right? at all, because he's sitting in the room, and they all know that he's going to be the first one. In fact, they pretty much say he's going to be the first one. We are basically writing what we want George to be. The problem that they face is, if we start talking about the presidency in general terms, What if we say something, well, what if a president does something that's illegal or high treason, with George Washington sitting right there? Might he be offended by what we say? Well, that seems kind of ridiculous. You think that, I think that, but delegates sitting there, remember, George Washington is giant. I mean, he's very tall. He's very manly. He He is the epitome of everything a man should be many of the delegates are not some of them are shall we say soft short they didn't fight in the revolutionary war they didn't they haven't done the things that he did they don't have his reputation they don't have his in fact if it wasn't for him many of them wouldn't even be there because he brought the gravitas that says you need to be here And there is a fear of offending him. What if we say something that somehow causes him slight or offense? And also keep in mind that there's an undercurrent here that all of these men in this room have an expectation that when this new government is put in place, that somehow or another they will be a part of it. And many of them will be. Many of them will be congressmen. Many of them will be senators. Many of them will end up in executive positions in the government. Several of them will end up as presidents. So if they piss off George, maybe it goes poorly for them. What happens if they make George upset? George Mason has none of these things. He has none of these concerns. He, In fact, he's Washington's good friend, and he realizes <laughs> that he's you know 10 years older than Washington, who's already in his 50s, and he just doesn't care. He stands up and he says, Shall any man be above justice? Above all, shall that man be above it who can commit the most extreme injustice? In other words, we're going to give this guy some pretty significant power. Power to potentially suppress the rights of individuals, we the people. we got to make dang sure that we do this right. And, of course, the biggest concern that they have is they recognize the fact that even though Washington will be that guy, they're basically writing his description, his job description. The problem they have is that there's only one George Washington. And they look around the room and they know that none of them are up to his standards. They know that none of the rest of the people in the country that might find themselves in that position are up to the standards of honor and moral stature of, of George Washington, who, by the way, again, is, uh, is a guy who likes to cuss and drink, but understands protocol and understands behavior. As we talked about on his inauguration, you know, the fact that he, was, he knows how to be quiet when it's time to be quiet. These are, uh, these are, and they know that he's not going to be president forever. As much as they'd like that. Hey, president for life, Washington. <laughs> what a great, that'd be an easy solution, wouldn't it? Because that'll, uh, he'll be around for another at least 10 to 15 years. Then we can all get together and work it out from there. See how it's working for him. And then, but they know they can't do that. The fear that they have is that men down the line might not be up to that. They've cast their eyes on Washington. They've shaped their ideas and powers to be given to a president based on what they think of George Washington. And there's a further concern here, John, and that is, what if they give so much power to the presidency because of who Washington is 
that ah. they end up screwing everybody else down line because... That's a really good point. So because they know Washington's going to be a good guy, so if they make all their decisions based on that... What happens if Washington, by the patriotism and virtue, contributes largely to the emancipation of his country, maybe the innocent means of being, when he is laid low, the method by which the people are oppressed, the presidency? And so this is weighing heavily on, on the delegates there as they try to decide these things. What should it be? As we begin to go through Article 2, we're going to see how they put this thing together. But they started with the very first element which, of course, they started with back with the legislator. Well, what does he do? Check. The executive power shall be vested in the president of the United States of America. He shall hold his office during the term of four years and together with the vice president chosen for the same time be elected as follows. And then we're going to get into the whole electoral thing next week when, when we get to that point. The ideas that they tried to avoid are preventing presidential hubris, and preventing a man who is less than virtuous from being able to use the office of presidency for his own gain, for the gain of his fellow friends and supporters, but mostly to prevent the president from using his position and his gain to suppress the rights of the people. That is their goal. Their model quickly becomes Washington, but their concern is the people that will come after him. Because they know, looking around that room, there are several presidents to be in this room, and they know what those people are like. Do they really want? Uh, they really want all that power in one hand. That's the question that they're asking themselves. Quarter till five six five. Dave five six five three two eight three is the text machine. Don't forget to log on to kfiv thirteen sixty dot com. Time running short. You must get registered if you want to be a chance to join us on Tuesday night at six thirty p.m. at Cal Shooting Sports. So get online to kfiv thirteen sixty dot com. And get registered right now. Stay with us back after. of life through the Constitution of the United States. 565-DAVE is the text machine number. As we're going to learn, John, the fear of the framers was not without good cause. If we just look at examples of presidential hubris throughout history, not, not necessarily scandal, just hubris, just I can do this because I'm the president. Thomas Jefferson, who is not part of the Constitutional Convention, but one of the most vehement adherents to the uh, to the Madisonian ha- element, which is the the idea that if it doesn't say you can, you cannot. Right? As president, he'll buy Louisiana. Oh yeah, we we'll we'll buy that from you, Napoleon. Thanks. Here's your here's your money. Many in Congress didn't think that that was constitutional. Now, ultimately. It worked out okay in our favor, but uh, there you go. How about James Monroe? He's most famous for the Monroe Doctrine, in which the president of the United States, just the president stood up and said, hey, um, this is our hemisphere. The rest of you people stay out. 
that seemed like uh, the kind of thing that they were expecting George Washington to do? I should not think so. In fact, I think George Washington said exactly the opposite. Don't, don't get involved in those things. But these are the powers that began to accumulate. It's not necessarily a scandal, per se, but it didn't take long for those to start up. Andrew Jackson would be caught up in a scandal not related to his presidency, but to his wife. This was the kind of thing that you really don't want the president, who's the chief executive, who's representing the country around the world, and people are talking about his wife. Well, they're living in sin. They're not really married. How dare they? But it was Ulysses S. Grant who really brought in the idea of presidential scandals. Now, U.S. Grant, as you well know, is General Grant from the Civil War. He's the guy that won right. the war. If anybody's going to be the next Washington. Find out what he drinks, Lincoln once said. I'd like to buy a case for all of my generals. This man fights. I love him. People, he, he became president almost by popular acclaim, having won the Civil War. People of the country said, that's the guy we want. We like generals. We really do. If you go through the history of our country, if you find a military general history, you got Washington. You've got Zach Taylor, Harrison, Grant. You've got a lot of Eisenhower. Many of these generals, they, they go. It wasn't that long ago that Colin Powell was being talked about in the same vein. Military leader, we want that guy. But unfortunately, they tend to not do well as presidents because politics isn't the military. There's politics in the military, but it's a totally different way of doing things. Grant is, uh, is caught up in several scandals. The, uh, his, turns out his secretary of uh, the Treasury is trying to corner the market on gold, affect the economy of the United States. He uh, shouldn't be doing that as he's using insider information. The, one of the biggest scandals is what's known as the whiskey ring scandal. See, they tax whiskey, John, because that's what we do. Government makes a lot of money on booze. Of course, uh, if the government's not getting the money from the tax and somebody bothers to look into where that money is going and they find out that it's going into the pockets of officials of the government, that does not reflect well upon the government, does it? Problems there. James Garfield, also a general. He has to deal with the uh, Star Route scandal. Six months of his presidency before he was assassinated. This was the Postal Service, which back then, all it said was Congress had to establish a Postal Service, right? Didn't say how to do it. They didn't have a U.S. Postal Service. They hired it out. Of course, they would bid on these postal routes. Yes, government, I'll do that route for, I don't know, 20 bucks a week. And then the government official would take it to Congress for approval at $50 a week and pocket the difference. Garfield got out of that by being assassinated. It's one way to do it, I suppose. Grover Cleveland had an interesting scandal and may have been the most ex- best example of how to handle it. Turns out that uh, he'd had a premarital affair with a woman and fathered, potentially fathered a child. It was never really clear if he was the father or not. But uh, people used to show up to his uh, campaign stops. Ma, ma, where's my pa? Gone to the White House. Ha, ha, ha. We had great political satire back yeah, in those days. That's hilarious. <laughs> he, he was forward about it. He said, yep, it's very possible. It's mine. I'll take responsibility for it. And the people of the United States went, we like that. They elected him again. Warren G. Harding may be the king of scandals as the president. Teapot Dome, the most famous scandal, where his, uh, his secretary of the interior was caught selling rights to drill oil in, in Wyoming uh, without telling anybody. 
and uh, keeping the money for himself. Warren Harding, uh, well, he just died as well. He just went to San Francisco and died. That's how kind of he got out of that. Most of it came out after he was gone. Iran-Contra during Ronald Reagan. Most of us idolize Ronald Reagan, but even during his presidency, the scandal of, of that. What did the president know? When did he know it? We're selling arms to terrorists, right? At least that's what we were told. Monica Lewinsky affair. The, uh, the idea that you can lie about anything under oath because it's just about sex. He actually ends up getting impeached over that, but we're told to ignore it. Of course, if you or I lied under oath, where would we be? In jail. Andrew Johnson gets impeached, but it's not for a scandal. It's for the fact that he hates Congress. Then there's Nixon, of course, the, uh, the poster child for political corruption. The framers' fears were justified. They were prescient. None of the 43 men who have followed George Washington have been up to the standard he set. Now, some were better than others. Some were hapless and basically honest. But the nature of how they got to the office of presidency required them to turn more or less a blind eye to those who benefited from their being in the office. Others were sly, devious, cunning, and simply not to be trusted. Others were paranoid and disconnected. Dick Nixon. But all of them have proven time and time again that the fears of the framers were well-founded and consequently properly addressed under one circumstance, and that is, what kind of government have you given us, Mr. Franklin? A republic, madam, if you can keep it. See, we choose the people that choose the president one way or the other. Right, it's up to us. And if we're going to allow our president to say, no, I'm going to fire the special prosecutor, or we don't need a special prosecutor, that's our fault. By the way, our president today said we don't need a special prosecutor. Really? You might want to think that one through again. Back in 60. So you can see, John, it was uh, quite the effort to put this presidency thing together. And you have to admit that they knew what they were doing in the sense that so far, at least theoretically, theoretically, none of them have become monarchs. Not yet. Right. Not good. Yeah, we don't like them all, but you know how this is going. If we get into more of this, we'll start uh, next week with how they selected. That's always a fun topic. The Electoral College. It's not fair. I love that conversation. We have that conversation. Every time the Electoral College comes up, well, name, it's that work. It's not fair. Do you understand why it's that way? Well, no. Okay. So you're just going to junk something that you don't understand. We'll get into that next week. That'll be fun. It's always fun. I like the Electoral College. <laughs> Tomorrow we got fun with news and John top five roller coasters. Yeah, that Pete, was that was kind of a late addition to right. the uh, the program, but uh, that way it works for me. Pete Trabuco is going to join us. He is a roller coaster expert, and uh, we're going to talk roller coasters in the five o'clock hour. We'll share our top five and his top five roller coasters. Cool. with folks. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, don't forget to go to kfiv1360.com. Get uh, registered to join us for the Cal Sports Shooting Sports Night coming up next Tuesday. You got to be registered. Uh, to get to go. All right, take the time right now. Tell the people that matter in your life you love them very much. You'd miss them if they weren't there, so don't pass up those opportunities. You don't want to have that regret. I'm Dave. That's John. Have a wonderful evening, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow for a Friday episode of Afternoons Live with Dave and John right here on KFIB 1360 AM Modesto, KWSX 1280 AM Stockton, everywhere via iHeartRadio. Stay tuned. Rusty Humphreys is next. We'll see you tomorrow. Sorry with the heart.
Afternoons Live is a slippery fish entertainment production for Clear Channel Media and Entertainment Modesto.